Welcome back to Following No One on a Stormlight Podcast. This week is episode 121, and we're doing interludes 7, 8, and 9, and chapters 73 and 74 of Rhythm of War. Paul, how are you? Great. I'm excited. Uh, I always love interludes, big time. Uh, and I'm so excited because we've made it to part four. I think part four and part five is where things really start going Sander Lanch crazy level mm-hmm. of reveals. So I cannot wait to dive in. We have returned to a Zeth interlude. I think this is our first Zeth POV of Rhythm of War. We haven't seen him since the end of Oathbringer. Ellie, how are you? I'm very good. I'm very good because we're we're talking about the Stormlight Archive as always. I think I'm I think I enjoy interludes less now that I understand them more. If yeah. that makes any sense. They I'm with you Paul, I do enjoy the interludes, but I I don't know. They make too much sense nowadays. They, like the this set of 3, they they were all fairly relevant. I knew all the characters and what they were talking about, I understood. Yes. I I kind of miss the Ishik wandering through the Pure Lake talking to random people about nonsense like there was just a... I, I do agree these were just chapters now this was like maybe yes. a glimpse over at the other story kind of thing um they, these didn't these aren't our classic um interludes where it's like oh here's one little thing you get to learn about this thing exists here's this and you have no idea what's going on you're dropped in completely blind that was my favorite thing about the interludes uh, being completely blind, just dropped in point blank, but knowing that there's something that we're going to be able to pull from it. And this this is different. It just felt like chapters, mostly. Yeah. Uh, but we had Zeth, so we always seem to save Zeth for these interludes or something. So do you think in his book, book five, he's still his only parts are going to be in interludes? No. I would hope okay, not. I, I'd hope not as well, but... I would what? cry, Brandon, if that were the case. While we're on this topic, where is where's Axes, the collector? Come on, where he's been? Where's Ishik? Well, did we find that out? Who cares? Where? No, we we haven't seen Ishik since the first okay. interlude of the Way of Kings. He's supposed to find Hoyd. That sounds important. He Trevor. was supposed to find Hoyd. That is true. Somebody told him to go find Hoyd. Have you guys gone back and reread that chapter and tried to figure out who is telling him to go find Hoyd? No, so but kind now of I topic, feel like I should. You, you should. Okay. I'll go look back. Maybe. All right. Uh, Maybe. Two words to summarize episode 121. Elliot. I have loopholes and manipulation. All right. Paul. I have broken trust. All right. Let's use these four words and talk about rhythm of war. All right, Elliot, loopholes and manipulation. Who found a loophole and who's manipulating who? The Fused have apparently found a loophole in the past. So in our flashback episode where 
help me pronounce this word. Ulim? 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 Ulim. Ulim? They pretend it's a double O in the audiobook. It's true. One of those names that just kind of sounds awkward off your tongue as a English speaker, I guess. Ulim, the the fused. I guess I'm assuming he's a fused. He's a void spren, maybe. I should say that, huh? Yeah. Ulim the void spren is talking with Venley and is explaining a number of things that are very interesting. But one of which that he talks about is that he's found a way around the Oath Pact. So at this point in time, Town is still holding strong on Braze. Yep. It has not broken yet. And yet, they've found a loophole and a way around him to get to Roshar. Super intriguing. And then I'm also going to loop in Zeth into my loophole discussion in that I am terrified. Zeth is starting to doubt Dalinar. I, I'm just in general kind of terrified of Zeth on, on the whole, but I've been less terrified lately because he's aligned himself like completely with Dalinar. So it's like, whew, okay, we don't have to worry about Zeth. He's on, he's on Dalinar's side. He's going to do whatever he's told. And then in this interlude, we realize that eh, maybe there's some, some chinks there, some loopholes. So I'm, I'm a little worried. And then manipulation, we see a lot of manipulation in this, these chapters, mainly from Teravengin and Ulim. Yeah. I am looking forward to talking about Zeth and Teravangian. Paul? Big time. I love Zeth. Everyone knows this if you've watched this far. If this is the first episode you're watching or listening to of our podcast, I love Zeth. He's my favorite character. Um, and this, we got a different aspect or a different level of depth with Zeth. We learn about his family a little bit. We learn about his history. And like Elliot was saying, I feel like we're starting to see, like, honestly, we're starting to see a motivation for Zeth, something that we haven't really seen. He's always taken orders, Mm -hmm. and we know there are some, like, pullbacks from things, like things he wants to not do. Like, he doesn't want to kill innocent people, right? Uh, But he's been made to do so for a long time now. Um But here we 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 start to get glimpses of what would be further ideals of being a skybreaker, right? Yep. Um, and I don't remember the terminology for it, but it sounded like he was to go basically uphold the law. I guess in his choice of place, he wants to go back to Shinovar. Shinovar. He wants to go back to Shinovar and quote, I believe, cleanse it or everything, which is very doesn't sound like good news. Um and so this this did make me worried. Right now I do trust that Zeth would not go like behind Dalinar, like would not like abandon Dalinar, would right. would be there until he kind of has so, a pseudo blessing or like given allowance to leave um also i don't know if i addressed my words but it's pretty tied to this directly uh, my words were broken trust broken is a reference just to zeth 
Um, broken specifically by Teravangian was really yep. destructive to him and the Shin people who deemed him truthless, right? Which was yep. very like destructive to him. Uh, and that's got to be his motivation for going back to Shinovar and that as a mission. Um, so this is entirely broken. And the thing is, with stuff that Teravangian tells him, which we'll talk about more later in Interlude 9, he needs to trust it, but, like, why would he? Why would he trust anything Teravangian says? He he says he's, like, not going to. And so it's just, like... It's just a mess. It's just a big mess. It is a big mess. That's a great way to put it. Okay. So, here's what I'll say. I... Um, I do trust Seth at this point in the story. I do trust Seth. I do not trust all of the voices in his ear. He has mm. Nightblood, who I don't trust a single inch, which Zeth doesn't either, so we're we're fine there. Uh, I don't trust Zeth's high spren. Zeth's high spren makes a an appearance here. He hasn't given Zeth his name. He calls him an acolyte, which is has is very like cult stigma on that word. Mm-hmm. And then he the high sprint is beginning to peel back Zest's third ideal and make him question it. Zest's third ideal or second ideal, third ideal, one of them. Uh third ideal, I think, is I will follow Dalinar Colin. He has a, he has completely anchored himself to Dalinar and uh, and Elliot, you said something about this with your words. And any time that Zeth sees that Dalinar doubts himself, he begins to doubt his ideal, which could have some bad implications for us moving forward. So I, I do have faith that Zeth is a good guy at this point. What I do not have faith in is the skybreaker model around him and how it could it how it could influence him yeah I'm, we've talked before about how or at least i've talked before about how zeth appears to be one of the most powerful people in this whole story and that's before you start to think about Nightblood. And so Zeth with Nightblood might be the most destructive force on Roshar. Yeah. Odium, Odium included in that discussion. And so, like I said with my words, I was feeling way more comfortable before I read this interlude because I was like, okay, we've got Zeth under control. Uh, after reading this interlude, I'm not so sure Zeth is, is under control as much as I was before. So, yikes. Yeah. Let's talk about we, seven and nine together. Uh, seven is Zeth is trying to. Zeth has a light wing over him to make him look like any Alethi soldier. And Zeth is trying to pretend like he's bored on this, uh, on this guard duty. He's guarding, he's down on our personal bodyguard. And Dalinar says, "Oh, you need to look bored and look le- look less like a look less like Zeth." And he's having trouble looking 
relaxed and he, he thinks to himself how does anybody relax with life I, I don't understand how to do that well I thought that was funny it shows like his intensity and how like honestly detached he is from normal life yes normal like a social life like he has no idea how people really interact like, like that's just not on his mind it has never been on his mind really as far as we know like in, in recent times times of the stories we've read he's had no it is business he is given he is told to do this and he does that that's it that's his interaction with people yes um and so it's kind of crazy like like he does not know basic things like basic like social or understanding world things which is peculiar I'm really hoping that if we get to start seeing more or hearing glimpses more into his past, that we could see that, you know, there was a normal kid, Zeth, who grew up and had friends or, like, you know, things and, you know. And maybe we can pull that out and make him another, like, humanized character. Um, That's my hope, is kind of the redemption in that regard with Zeth. Um, And I was beyond excited whenever I saw that we get mention of his, his family, his father. And I believe it mentions a sister. It does. I, I don't remember much about the sister, but it talks a little bit about the father. Um, mentions that his father also wielded an honor blade. Um, wasn't the same one. Right. It was not the Windrunner one. It was a different... Was the Skybreaker? In my head, it's the Skybreaker. I don't think we've been told. Not know. Okay. There, we might not know. But wielded an honor blade that was not the Windrunner, I believe. Yep. Um, and that was like part of a... That was like his father's punishment. And I believe brought shame, which is... I assume why we always hear Zeth son son Volano, not his... Valana would be his grandfather, not his dad. Uh, he Correct. doesn't like claim his father, I guess, in his title. And I assume so, that's tied to this. His father maybe brought shame, did something crazy, and is now punished to become a warrior so, in Shin culture. You're thinking about this a little bit backwards. Okay. Um, Zeth is proud of his father. He really admires his father uh and a takeaway we get from this interlude is zeth's father said the the greatest thing you can do in the world is add to it as opposed to subtract from it and then something happened where zeth's father was given an honor blade and he was taught to detract from the world as opposed to add um and i'm under the assumption that that is against his father's will that he doesn't want to be carrying a blade that's i don't know if that's written um written out but that's my understanding so when zeth is deemed truthless and is given the windrunner sword he goes by zeth's son son Volano because he doesn't want to sully the name of his father he is so ashamed of himself that he doesn't take his father's name because he honors his father he takes his grandfather's name who knows what his grandfather did uh, but he's he's staying away from his father's name because he is so ashamed of himself and what he has done. 
Um, that is not the case in this interlude. He's moved past that by now because now he he names himself Zeth's son Honor in uh in this interlude. So he he's fairly moved moved past all of that. But when we first meet Zeth, he is trying not to uh diminish the name of his father. And that made me really excited when I saw Zeth's son Honor. By the way, because it does show that like development, that change. Um, so very grateful, very happy about that. I enjoyed these segments as well. These references to Zeth's family, which you're absolutely right, brings another dimension into his story that we haven't really gotten into before. And I was just, I, I wondered if that's a little taste of what you know, book five might start to get into. Is this just yeah. a little? A little bit of a pre-look at what we might start diving into in book five, which might be Zeth's relationship with his family or the legacy that he is carrying on, perhaps. Yeah, I would assume so, that if we get to go to Shinovar in book five, that's just a big assumption of mine. We better. I've been trying to cross off stuff on my map, and we haven't even touched Shinovar yet, so uh, I feel like, good on that. I feel like Shinovar and, was it Eerie that's above Shinovar? are the only two places we've never really spent that much time. I think we've vis- at least visited everywhere else. There's a bunch of little random corners that we haven't been to, but yeah, as far as major areas, I think you're right. Nightblood comes back into our story with his iconic line, I think you should draw me, Zeth. And Zeth leaves him to be a sentinel while he talks to his high spren. And Nightblood says, ah, oh, yes, I can do that. You should leave me drawn, though. So if somebody evil comes along, I can really get them. And Michael Kramer has a lot of fun with that line in the audiobook. I, I, I really enjoy listening to this interlude simply because of Michael Kramer's performance with Nightblood. It's true. And, and it, it was, we got, we always get some fun moments, I feel like, with Nightblood dialogue. And this one... Zeth was like, whatever I draw you, you like literally suck the life force out of me. And he's like, that's nonsense. I would never do that. I would never do such a thing. You know, I like you. I do like you, you know, like, and it's always, always fun and ridiculous. Nightblood is somehow, and I, I can't even understand it. Nightblood is somehow equal parts cute and likable and utterly terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I don't know how. It just is. It is. We he just straight up name drops Vasher and Vivenna. Like Brandon Sanders just assumes that you know about Warbreaker at this point. Let's talk about his high spread. Um so the fourth ideal of the Skybreakers is you have to choose a crusade. And Zeth, ever since ideal two Back in Oathbringer, Zeth has said to himself, I already know what my ideal is. I'm going to go back home, and I'm going to cleanse Shinovar. And we don't know really what happened to Zeth to make him... Well, he's made truthless because he claims either the Knights Radiant are returning, or the Voidbringers are returning, or maybe a combination of that. And the, the Shin people say, no, that's impossible. We are deeming you truthless. Uh... I assume this is just a ritual of, of Shinovar. Redeeming you truthless, you have to carry this stone with you. 
and whoever holds the stone, you have to follow them their word verbatim. And one thing leads to another. This his stone gets to Teravangian. Teravangian orders the assassination of kings and queens all across Roshar. That's what uh, the interludes are all about for uh, during the Way of Kings, and a little bit in Words of Radiance as well. Uh, so Zeth blames the Shin people and Teravangian personally um, uh, for what he has to go through. Because by the end of this interlude, Zeth overhears that Teravangian had asked for an oath stone um, and requested an oath stone from, from Dalinar. Dalinar doesn't know what it is, but Zeth recognizes it as an oath stone request. And so then that leads us into interlude nine, where Zeth goes and confronts Teravangian of like, why the heck are you trying to get your hands on an oath stone? What are you doing? What is... What does Zeth tell himself at the end of Interlude 7? Is it end of Interlude 7 when he's saying, basically, don't trust Teravangian, I've got to stop that guy? Yes, but it's a little more aggressive than that. He says, I need to dispose of him before he kills Dalinar. Yeah. And we are under the assumption. I asked you guys this a couple up or a couple episodes ago. Is Teravangian in danger? Is is he going to reach the the end of the book? And you guys were like, yeah. I mean, he's not really a threat anymore, unless Zeth thinks he is. <laughs> if Zeth thinks Teravangian is a threat, Teravangian could be in some serious trouble. Um, but he doesn't just go out outright and stab him because. Dalinar wants him alive, so he does go confront him at least in in I nine. Doesn't just go stab him, but what? Are you guys as concerned about Tervangian as Zeth is? I don't think I'm as concerned as Zeth is. I a small part of me actually has a little bit of hope for Tervangian. I I a little bit hope that he might based on the discussion he had with Dalinar not too long ago, might the logic in, in Teravangian might start to acknowledge that, that Dalinar has a hope or has a, I mean, that's, that's what Dalinar does have that Dalinar has a chance yeah. that his, his hope may come through in the end. And that maybe Teravangian might decide that, Oh, actually your side does have a shot. So I'll, I'll help you out. Uh, Zeth doesn't see that. Zeth is the, you're a, you're a plotter who's going to continuously try and undermine us. I need to take you out. Let's talk about I-9 real quick, because it jumps to Teravangian, and Teravangian is having a weak day. Never mind. <laughs> having a, a dumb day, I should say. And... We're expecting a confrontation from Zeth um, based on the interlude that we just read. but And it does come, but first, Renarin shows up to Teravangian. And Renarin has a couple choice words for Teravangian. Did you guys get this? Renarin is on the, the train that I was actually just talking about. That 
I have hope that Teravengian might might turn over to the the good guys, if you will. Renarin seems to be thinking the same thing. He seems to be there to talk to Teravengian to say, "Hey, I don't think you're completely beyond all help here. There, there's a chance you can you can come back." Renarin says, "I grew up with my father, and my father." showed me that no man is ever too far gone that he can't find his way back. And it's a really cool moment um, from Renarin. He has, a, he has a lot of these. He doesn't get that much page time, but when he does, he really makes it count. And he he like awkwardly extends his hand to Teravangian to, as, as you know some sort of peace offering or something. And Teravangian thinks it's awkward and Renarin thinks it's awkward, but he he really is trying to extend extend a hand, literally and phys- and metaphorically, of we're we can help you if you open up to us and talk to us. We have the ability to bring you back here. You don't have to keep going down this road that you're on. And then. The flip side of that is like two paragraphs later down on the same page where t- where Zeth shows up and says the opposite. Yep. Renarin has just said, no man is too far gone. And then Zeth shows up and says, eh, we can't all return from the dark. There are some acts that once committed will always taint a man. Definitely the opposite sentiment that Renarin was just showing. Yeah. Teravention, once he figures out that it's Zeth, kind of like word vomits on, on Zeth. He's like, here's my opportunity. I need to do what? Is he helping is he manipulating? What are what's Teravangian at right now? Is he do you guys trust this info that he drops on Zeth or do you not? I will say I trust it. Okay. I'll actually be quick to say it because it, it shows it, it it I don't remember the direct quote, but it does show Teravangian's thought process some and how the only reason he's sharing this is because he feels safe doing so because Renarin is there. And so Odium can't really like see him right uh-huh. now. So he's like, this is my one opportunity to say this like candidly. And so he like basically says that Nightblood is like something that Odium hasn't taken into account and Odium fears Nightblood. Odium like actively is afraid of Nightblood and what Nightblood can do. And so he's trying to give Zeth the scoop. He's like, all right, listen, you need to go fight him right now while he can't see you with Nightblood. But, but why would Zeth believe anything that Teravangian says? And yeah, th- there's, there, there's love there. There is a random sentence in here that it has nothing to do with anything else that Teravangian says that I think can sway the credibility of this, either left or right. Teravangian dismisses Zeth's... Well, 
Tervangian tells Zeth that his father is dead. Two interludes previous, Zeth is under the assumption that his father is alive. His father is alive and well, and he is a bearer of an honor blade. So that one line, I think, might give credit or take away credit from the rest of what Teravangian is saying here. If he's if he's trying to manipulate Zeth, and what could if let, let's assume for a second that Teravangian is lying, what are the consequences of doing what uh, Teravangian tells Zeth to do? Well, first of all, what does Teravangian tell Zeth to do? Basically, go fight Odium. Yes, but there's a second part to that. He says to give Dalinar the sword and send Dalinar into the visions to go fight Odium. Right. So he says the sword will go with him in those visions. Give it to Dalinar and he can use it to kill Odium in the vision. We'll back up a second. Um, First of all, I think Nightblood is going to eat up Dalinar as soon as Dalinar touches it. um, Because there's no, no way that that Nightblood thinks Dalinar is a good guy with how much killing he's done. Um, second, you could just be delivering Nightblood to Odium on a silver platter. Yeah? Uh, I'm still stuck back on... You asked the question of, is, is Teravangian manipulating Zeth? I'm I'm actually wondering is Teravangian manipulating Teravangian? The the Teravangian that we see in the scene. Paul, I'm with you. I actually I trust him. I trust that Teravangian. That Teravangian is trying to do the right thing, at least a little bit. However, that's not the Teravangian that wrote the notes that the Teravangian in the scene is reading. And so I don't think I, I trust these directions because I think it's quite plausible that smart Teravangian is manipulating dumb Teravangian to send Zeth on this errand to go do the thing that might be potentially helping Odium in the long run. So that's an interesting distinction. I'm really glad you brought it up because... Teravangian tells Zeth two things. He says, Odium fears the sword, and your father is dead. And then it says, Teravangian goes off script and says, give the sword to Dalinar. That is off script of give the sword to Dalinar. The other two were on script. Smart smart Teravangian wrote that. The third one is, give the sword to Dalinar. Well... And what is in the script that Teravangian specifically notices is multiple times written, do not tell Zeth to go to Dalinar. Yep. And so that's where I start to wonder, like, is is smart Teravangian pulling the, the reverse psychology on dumb Teravangian? Of, this is getting confusing. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna draw dumb Teravangian's attention to Dalinar so that his emotions will kick in and say, I can't do this. 
go talk to Dalinar. You got to do it this way when that's actually what smart Terravanian wants to happen all along. I see what you're saying. That kind of makes sense. I don't like it, but I do see what and, you're uh, saying. So, <laughs> so with 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 smart Terravanian writing this, it makes sense because. Uh, so my concern right now, and why I really don't think Terravanian was lying or trying to manipulate Zeth, is Terravanian has nothing to gain. Like, why would he help Odium if he he does ultimately deep down want Odium to lose? He just knows it's impossible. So he struck his deal to save Carbranth, right? Or his people, right? Uh, and now is his opportunity to kind of talk candidly. Why would he like want to deliver Nightblood? on a silver platter to Odium. Which, if this is old, smart Terravangian manipulating current Terravangian, being like, oh yeah, I have this in my notes, what I need to tell him, and it's manipulative information, that makes sense. That 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 makes total sense of like, dang, like, you know, Terravangian is kind of on the same side as Odium there in the past. But right now, I don't think he's trying to manipulate Zeth. And sorry, excuse me. I don't. I feel like it's a little too much of 3D chess for the do not tell Dalinars to be reverse psychology. If so, I'd be impressed. But man, if that'd any, be pretty deep. If anyone were to play 3D chess, though, it's smart Teravangian on a good day. It's true. I just hope it. If that's the case, I hope it explains that. Because if not, I would never pick that part up. Right. You know. I I I do think Nightblood is the key. With a few of the hints that we've gotten dropped, they do align with this that might point to Nightblood can destroy anything. Nightblood can destroy Odium, potentially, perhaps. Right. I think where I'm not so sure is, oh, give it to Dalinar and send him into the Visions alone to go face Odium with it. Yeah. That starts to sound like not a great idea to me. I, I will say, though, the moment, if it happens, when Nightblood is drawn in the presence of Odium, oh my goodness, that is going to be the scene to end all scenes. I agree. I would like to see it happen. Anything else for Interlude 9? Not here. All right, back up to interlude eight real quick. I don't think there's anything to get out of this chapter besides one thing. The very last two sentences of the interlude, Chiri Chiri starts talking to to Risen. And Chiri Chiri says, Risen needs food. And Risen like freaks out that her dragon just started talking to her. And that's the end of the scene. Um, but I am, I'm thoroughly convinced that Chiri Chiri is a crab dragon, um, a, a dragon in the classical sense of wise talking, like a sentient being. It's just a Roshar dragon. So it looks like a crab. I, I agree with this. 
if it's talking, then we have to assume so, I think. Yeah. We have to assume the classic dragon. Though, apparently a dragon on some sort of awakening process? Or maybe it's more simple than that. Maybe it's just a growth process of Jerry Cherry is too young and hasn't developed, you know, to that level yet. And this is, we're just kind of seeing that maybe. Yeah, first words, Jerry Cherry's yeah. first words, you know? Aw, shed a tear. Very sweet. Anything else was, for I8? There was one other thing I did highlight, and it's, I don't know that we know enough to, to really dive into it, but I just, I just want to note it in case it comes back up later and is, and is important. It's referenced a couple times in this chapter that Chiri Chiri feels the rhythms of Roshar. Yeah. Which isn't surprising. It, if Chiri Chiri, if their species is native to Roshar, that doesn't surprise me at all. There's just one one of those references seems to maybe hint at something more. I'll, I'll, I'll read it. It says, Chiri Chiri could not hide. The rhythm whispered that she could not do only easy things. Dark times were coming, the hollow skulls warned, and the vibrations of that place. Encouraging. Demanding. Be better. You must be better. That sort of, like, voices or kind of commands coming through the rhythms that she's feeling, that seems of note to me, that this whole... I think you could maybe draw the assumption that that's purely just talking about the speaking that we get at the end of the chapter of just, you need to, you need to be more of a player in this. Therefore you need to, you know, grow more and develop the the ability of speech. But I kind of wonder if it's more like what, what is this voice or this vibration, this rhythm that is speaking to cheery, cheery, be better. You must be better. Like, where's that coming from? And what does it mean? I'm intrigued. I wrote it off as her closeness to the Dawn Shard. Because Dawn Shards whisper to people all the time. I say all the time. With the one example we have. Um, <laughs> it has 100% of the time we've yes. interacted with a Dawn Shard. What is, what is Risen's Dawn Shard again? What does it tell her to do in Dawn Shard? I just remember it was like a painting, a golden glowing painting. Yeah, I do not remember it, anything that it said. It commands her to do something, though. Unite them. Ah, that's that is the unity dawn chart theory. Uh huh. Um, but I don't. I don't remember. Does it command her to change? I don't remember. I don't remember either. I don't remember either. Anyway, um, I I wrote that off as Cheery Cheery's closeness with the Dawn Shard. That there's literally a Dawn Shard sitting right next to her, and so you're gonna hear. Yeah. you're gonna hear voices. Okay, that's an interesting way to go with it. I didn't remember. Well, I remember that Risen is our Dawn Shard because I feel, still think that's going to be incredibly important, although it hasn't really come into play yet. But associating those two, okay, that might be a way to explain it. Because that's where no. that's where the Dawnshore was, was hiding in the hollow skulls that she's talking about back on the homeland, right? Right. That, that carapace chamber thing. Okay. Yep. I'll buy in. I'm tracking. Cool. Anything else? 
Not on that one. All right. Into part four. We have a Venley flashback chapter and then a Venley present day chapter to hit off part four for us. The Venley flashback chapter, there this whole this whole scene is one long dialogue scene between Ulim and Venley. And Venley Ulim kind of gives us a history lesson actually, and Venley gives us a couple rules about Voidspren and what they know and how Ulim is manipulating her. Ven Ulim says or sorry, Venley says that Ulim can read her thoughts immediate, like right off the bat. They just bonded, like at the end of uh part three, a couple episodes ago. And Ulim can read Venley's thoughts. Compare that to Kaladin, where it has taken Syl and Kaladin years to read each other's thoughts word for word. And th there was a there was a point where he had just said the third ideal and he's changing still from like a spear to a shield to a, a sword like mid fight while fighting Zeth right and that that was a new power for them they like they they were reading each other's thoughts and then when they were sneaking around the tower in early earlier in rhythm of war he's sending her telepathic met like sentences of the singers are looking up into the sky um to look for to look for um flying wind runners and he he's having trouble sending her like specific words now compare that to Ulim and venley and Ulim can hear every thought that venley has i just wanted to highlight that of like the speed that that occurs here I wonder if that's an indicator of the maturity of the spren, not necessarily the the human the bond. or singer. Yeah. yeah. The, okay. the bondee, bonder. Okay. I'd buy that. Uh, just thinking about, you know, how when we first met Syl, she was incredibly naive, very childish, very just awakened sort of thing. And she's come a very long way from that. She's matured a lot. Whereas Ulam is old. Sil is also ancient, right? But she's kind of had a reawakening. Ulam has this wealth of knowledge, apparently. And so he is apparently coming into it with the maturity. So I wonder if that's part of why. Yeah, could be. Every time that Venli begins to question herself um in this chapter ulim is there with a quick like but you could be gray if you find this power or you're doing great don't back up now or your ancestors were idiots don't listen to them like he he's got every he's got every phrase ready for for venley's questioning because the listeners, the the old, the ancient listeners who broke away from Odium, wrote all these songs down of you know don't don't bond Spren, don't worship our old gods, the unmade and the old Spren, and Ulim is like yeah, but what if you did though? That sounds kind of fun. It reading it seems 
so obvious that Ulam is the the devil on the shoulder. Yes. Not not the angel. It seems painfully clear. Like Venley, why do you not realize that he's manipulating you? But but I thought too about it's easy to see that from an outside perspective. It's way harder to see that sort of thing when it's happening to you. You know, when someone comes to you and tells you, "Man, you're really good at that." Like you really want to believe that when they, when someone says that, like part of you just kind of swells inside. Is like, oh yeah, I am good at that. Aren't I? It's hard to see that when you're in the situation, as opposed to us from kind of the bird's eye view. You're like, yeah, okay. Venley, don't trust a word he says. Right. Do we, either one of you want to walk through the history lesson that y- Ulim gives us? I, this is information that I already knew, but I forgot where I learned it from, and it's right here. So for those of you who learned this for the first time, it'll be more fresh in your memories. Yeah, I can definitely take this. Some big, some big drops, actually, in this chapter. I got very excited. So Ulim just kind of starts rambling at some point to, to Venley and just talking about some of what's happened in the past and explaining a few things. And he even says things like, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but here's what happened. And what he explains is that the voids, the void bringers were locked away on Braze. He hasn't mentioned Braze, but he says they've been locked away and they were locked away so long that the unmade decided to start a war without them. The implication there is almost like, oh, the unmade got too impatient waiting for us to come back, that they just decided to start a war without them. And he even goes further and explains some more about the whole Ba'ado Mishram's relationship with the singers, which was really helpful for me. He explains that the that Ba'ado Mishram, the unmade, tried to give the singers, I almost want to call it like pseudo forms of power. Yeah. That the the void spread that can actually give those forms of power, they're all locked away. So they, they the singers that are on Roshar couldn't actually access forms of power at whatever point in history this was. So Ba'ado Mishram took it upon themselves to do this and unlock these abilities and give grant these powers to singers so that they could rise up and fight against the humans. Well, they did this. However, Ba'ado Mishram ended up linking to all of the singers. And so when the humans figured out, oh, we can just capture Ba'ado Mishram in a gemstone, similar to the way that Dalinar did with the Thrill, they did that. And then it crippled all of the singers because they were tied into, they were reliant on Ba'ado Mishram for their power. That explains that whole bit that happened that created the Parshman that we got, that we entered the story with, right? These barely sentient beings who can't even speak a full sentence. This is why. This is why they they had partnered with Ba'ado Mishram to try and achieve the forms of power that they couldn't get because the Void Spren were locked away on Braze. 
but it backfired when the humans were able to lock up Bottle Mishram and they all became kind of trapped within their own heads. Am I am I tracking all that correctly? Did I make any mistakes that you can tell me about, Trevor? Yep, you're 100% correct so far. I think it is just so cool to have this information. This isn't something that I thought needed explaining. If if you asked me, like, oh yeah, explain why they really lost their their forms, their powers, all this stuff, their their like capacity, if you will, I wouldn't have had an answer for you really. But I didn't really think about it that much. I was like, yeah, you know, they lost it uh, with the oath pact or whatever, right. All this stuff. There's a lot of things I can kind of point to and be like, oh yeah, it was because of this. But we have like the reason, like the cause and effect of this happening. And I think that's super cool um, to learn about that. And also, yeah, just, just learning more of our unmade drama. It's been a minute since we've like been concerned about an unmade, I think. Yeah. Which this sheds an interesting light on the recreants. So the recreants happen sometime during this, right? Where Ba Edo Mishram is imprisoned and and then the Knights Radiant put up their swords at somewhere in there. And that they've discovered, oh, like we're we're the void bringers. We were we destroyed Ashen uh, before before coming here? We're gonna put up our swords, and I wonder if it's I wonder if there's more than more to it than that, and it has to do with disarming the singers of their forms, and that's unethical, and so they're putting up their swords because you know, let's say the Bondsmiths at the time were like, yeah, we need, we need to do this. Um, and then everybody else was like, no, or, you know, like the skybreakers or somebody was like, Hey, we need to, we need to do this and lock away bot in a Mishram. And everybody else was like, no, we don't. Um, but then it comes in the part of like, is it worth let they kill their spren to do this? So it, the recreants still has some question marks on it of why and when, um, it it plays into Ba Edo Mishram and locking her away. I uh, I'm on the same thought train of trying to tie this to the recreants and explain that. I'm almost wondering if they came up with the plan to imprison Ba Edo Mishram. Maybe the Spren even came up with that idea, not knowing exactly what it was going to do to the singers. And then when they did it, they successfully did it. And they realized what they had just done to the singers, that they had taken what was a, an entire culture, a people group, and reduced them down to these people who can't even speak their thoughts anymore. If that was enough to cause them to do what they did, or maybe that and the revelation of we are the original Voidbringers came out at the same time, and that combination there was what caused them to betray their spren and walk away. It does seem like we're getting more puzzles, more pieces for the puzzle. Yeah. Not sure. Anything else for Ulim? Just 
a quick one on the loophole that I talked about at the very beginning of the episode. This this is the chapter where Ulim explains the loophole. And I think I follow it in that the Voidspren, Ulim, for example, are able to travel to Roshar through the Everstorm, which at this point exists in Shadesmar, but not in the physical realm yet. But he references some sort of like, our agents have to travel to the location of the Everstorm, which, by the way, is out in the middle of the ocean. Then, like, arrive at the right place at the right time and use the right gemstone to pull the Voidspren into the physical realm from Braze. Yeah. And then you can take the, that gemstone with the Voidspren in it back to Roshar and do what Venli did with it and awaken him and bond him. So it sounds like a very complicated process, but somehow there's a way around the whole Oath Pack thing which that seemed very important because a lot of things in, in our history track here seem to hinge around the Oath Pact. I'm wondering... So let's talk about storms for a second. I The Everstorm existing in Shadesmar only doesn't really compute in my head. Like, that does... What does that even mean? I don't, I don't know what that means. But I wonder if the Everstorm... If locking away the unmade caused the Everstorm to stop, we're on a circular globe, right? And I wonder if the Everstorm is just stalled on the other side of the planet for millennia, whatever, 4,500 years. And so in order to pull Voidsprint through, you have to go there, and it's, and it's stationary. And so the high storm keeps going around the planet, and the reason why it's not entirely predictable is because it has to pass the Everstorm. And it's going to slow it down or speed it up based on, you know, like, random random effects or Physics, whatever. whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah, based on whatever you, X. Um, and because if a, if a high storm was rotating the planet, I would assume that would be predictable, you know, to the, to the yeah. exact hour or whatever. But because the Everstorm is sitting there it's got to pass it every time. And so it's delayed or sped up every couple times. I'm just wondering if the Everstorm is actually on Roshar. It's just on the other side of the planet, just chilling. Maybe. I don't entirely get what the significance of that would mean. It but means see, it's like, not, I see what you mean. It means it's not covering crossing Roshar and not, Producing void light, which means we're not producing void spread. Okay, so like hypothetically, if it wasn't stopped, there there would have just always been void spread and void light and everything. It would have been like quote a normal part of Roshar, right? Um, as as we see Roshar this last yeah. year. Okay. But then also there's the there's people that have said that the Everstorm is new, so maybe that's not the I don't know. Is there supposed to, if that's the case, should there be some equivalent for life light or the life storm? Anything like that? Or, yeah, exactly, the life storm. That'd be pretty cool. Um, Which Ulim does mention a storm in the south. Well, the first time we meet him. So when Venli goes into the high storm and bonds him, Ulim's like, yo, is this the storm in the south? 
and that's uh, there's a one liner for you. I don't know. Interesting. Maybe so. Maybe if so, then I would I would give this much more thought. Right now, I'm like, uh, eh, that's eh. in my head. It's a stretch, a bit of a stretch. Um, but if that's the case, then I'm like, all right, it hit three. That's our magic number. Three and ten. Yep. Yeah. I would assume the life storm is actually a blizzard because we're in the southern hemisphere. <laughs> That'd be ironic. could be. And the the Feverstone Keep has got all those sideways icicle things. Remember that? Yeah. Do we know where that is yet? We don't, do we? No, you don't, or I don't. Interesting. Anyway, woo! I let's. That was a spark. Anyway, um, anything else for seventy three? Negative. All right, and then current day Venley seventy four. Venley is hiding Liren and plus family, kind of in plain sight. She pulled them to go help with the radiance. The radiance that are unconscious in the tower Liren is just caring for them as he does and Venli and Relaine walk in and they have a conversation with with Liren in this in this chapter did you guys get anything out of this I got that Liren is still very much on the cooperation is the best resistance train he's He's actively arguing for, hey, we need to cooperate with the singers, with the fused. Relaine brings in these maps that he's found. That I guess he, when the when they first invaded, Relaine was trying to figure out, oh, what what can I do to be productive here? How can I help? And what he came up with was, well, no one's paying attention to all these maps. Maybe I should go grab these. So he does, and he, I guess he he hides them, he stashes them somewhere, and then goes and gets them now. But Liren's first response to this is, oh, we should go turn these in and see if we can gain some favor with the fused. Yep. It It's like, um, I totally appreciate the whole pacifist and, I don't know, peace angle that he's going for. His his logic is is not bad. His logic is, we can't fight these people, so we might as well protect ourselves by not angering them. Right. I don't have a problem with that. But when every little thing that comes across is, oh, well, we need to turn this in, it's like, um, buddy, you remember what side you're on here? Yeah. The the servants that come in to help them have shash glyphs on their forehead from the end of part three here, where Kaladin dives off the balcony and flies through the atrium and everybody's like, whoa. Um, Kaladin still fights, and so everybody puts shash glyphs on their forehead because he gives them the hope that there's so- someone still fighting. And Liren, you know, having your estranged son's slave brands on this random guy's foreheads might be a little sore spot for you. And he says, "You guys are stupid. That's just going to get you get more people killed. You need to." not support Kaladin and everybody else is like I can do whatever I want don't care yeah 
and that's a good example for me of the of the difference. I think I would side with Liren. I guess it's kind of implied that Liren is. I don't remember exactly what he says, but against the the open display of rebellion, basically of painting the Shash brand as a symbol. I agree with Liren. I think that's a terrible idea. Don't provoke the enemy that you're kind of being oppressed by. But then I go to the other half of the conversation is like, but at the same time, don't go out of your way to help the people that are oppressing you. Right. You know, who, who defends the Shash cliff in the scene? Besides the people wearing it, obviously it's Venley. Is it? Venley says, no, you should let him. It gives him hope. Hope is a good thing. I just thought that was interesting. Because Venley is very much on the side of the downtrodden singer. The the singer who has been got the short end of the stick. Uh, I either live under the boot of the humans or I live long enough to be turned into a uh, fuse. That's that's what most singers have on their plate here of if the singers win, eventually I'm going to get turned into a fused and die. Uh, and some they're gonna take my body. Or if the humans win, they're gonna turn us back into slaves. That's that's the lose lose situation that Venley sees. So seeing these humans who are now under the boot of the fused have some hope, that that goes along with a lot a lot of things that Venley uh can subscribe to of hope is not a bad thing that's what i'm looking for here so that's a really good point trevor i did not think about this while reading that um uh, like about how it gives hope and, and specifically what that means for benley and her position as a like a listener right yeah um, so that's really cool My question has always just been where when are we gonna see Lyft? She, apparently she's in an uh aluminum cell somewhere, so mm. tough. Yeah, somebody needs to somebody needs to get Lyft out, because Lyft could be a big help here. And we had a moment where it, it almost seemed like Venley Remember that moment where Venley tried to say her oath? Yeah. And it got rejected? Because she hadn't let well, presumably because she hadn't let Lyft out. Right. Her guess was that, oh, I can't say this yet because here's someone right in front of me who's been captured and I can't say an oath about freedom when there's someone in front of me who's been captured. We haven't revisited that yet. I hope we do soon. What happened to Lyft's AVR? We had a moment there where Lyft was about to be like the coolest person on Roshar. She had an AVR, she had lifelight. We were just understanding what lifelight was. And then she got locked up. What happened to her AVR? Marie's had it for lunch. <laughs> wow. Brutal. <laughs> no. Tell me that's not on the list of possibilities. He, he'd give it to one of his followers first, like before that, right? He would sell it, yeah. You're right. He would sell it for like a lot of money or something, if not. Or smuggle it, it, smuggle it off Roshar or something like that. No, or yeah. just flex yeah. and fry it up, you know. Each shoulder, one on each shoulder. There you go. Let's six of the desk has one on each shoulder. Yeah. Anything else for this episode, gentlemen? 
all right we are already into part four we can continue it next week small spoiler for you the return of Shalon and Adolin next week <gasps> back in Shadesmar <sighs> and I'm excited for it whoa I did notice Shalon's name on the list of, of POVs at the start of part four and probably for the first time since Wave Kings I got very excited about a Shalon POV because it was like we kind of left them on a major cliffhanger I need to go back and explore that again we did. It's kind of easy to forget about their storyline. It's been a while since we visited with them, so. And she's on the cover of the book. All right. Let's reconvene it next week. Thanks for joining me, Paul and Elliot. Onward we go. Um. Uh.